This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, fibbing to our doctors. Almost everybody does it for what we think are good reasons. They did not want to be judged. They didn't want to hear how bad the behavior in question was for them. They were embarrassed. But there's also a big downside. We'll find out about it when Radio Health Journal returns. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show. Here's a preview of what they're covering on Viewpoints this week. This week on Viewpoints. As a species, we're very good at creating excuses for not doing what we know is probably the right or the ethical thing. How gardening differently can help animals, the environment, and ourselves. Then. All those Disney stories were based on this false premise because they'd all come from the Grimm stories and then been sanitized. A look at one of the most popular book series for children and what it has to say about the world. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station, iTunes and Stitcher. Anytime you go to the doctor, whether for a sick visit or for a routine physical, you can expect a few questions about your habits. Do you exercise? How's your diet? Do you smoke or drink alcohol? Are you taking your medications? Those questions are all normal. It's also apparently normal for us to fib when we answer them. We did two separate studies with a combined total of about 4,500 people. And in one study, it was 61%. And in the other study, it was 81% that withheld at least one of these seven types of information. That's Dr. Andrea Germankin-Levy, Associate Professor of Psychology at Middlesex Community College in Middletown, Connecticut. She's first author of a pair of studies looking at how often people are less than truthful in response to their doctor's questions. We didn't specifically ask about lying first because we thought people would be less likely to admit to it if we used such a strong word, and second because we weren't just interested in commissions, we were interested in omissions. So even if they're kind of passively not offering information but doing so deliberately, that seems important too. So we can't say that 61% and 81% of people lie. All we can say is that they're withholding these particular types of information, which of course has some overlap with explicitly lying. So in other words, people are often stretching the truth. Maybe we say we exercise more than we really do or drink less than we really do. Most people reported withholding from their healthcare provider information such as having an unhealthy diet, not exercising, taking a certain medication, even taking someone else's prescription medication. And when we asked them why they did this, the reasons that came up the most were that they did not want to be judged, they didn't want to hear how bad the behavior in question was for them, and that they were embarrassed. Most of them said they didn't want to be judged or they didn't want to get lectured, those types of things. And there was also some other little interesting things. People were embarrassed by things, or they didn't want to be difficult, or they didn't want to waste the doctor's time. So you could understand why somebody might choose not to give or fully disclose everything. 
That's Dr. Maricela Moffitt, professor of medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. She's also director of the doctoring curriculum, which, among other things, teaches medical students how to get patients to open up and share everything a doctor really needs to know. She says that the study of patients shows that some are more likely to withhold information than others. Women, younger people, and those in worse health are more likely to stretch the truth. Patients are also more likely to omit information if the doctor is young and male. So you can imagine a young woman seeing a young male doc, not wanting him to know maybe that I engage in stuff that's probably, you know, harmful to me, that I know is. Maybe that I'm smoking or drinking too much or maybe using drugs or whatever. It's just, you could see that angle there. I mean, that I don't want to be judged or I want you to think the best of me. And I think as human beings, I think that's really what we want. I mean, we all have masks that we're projecting that everything is perfect. I mean, look at Facebook. So it's just, I think it is a little bit more pervasive now, uh, even, just, even outside of medicine. So I could see why that is. We know that people tend to withhold information from others, and we know that this is especially true when it comes to sensitive information. And a lot of what doctors and patients have to talk about can be pretty uncomfortable. So it can be hard to tell your doctor some things especially because as patients, we want our doctors to like them and we don't want to be embarrassed and we don't want to feel judged. Some patients may not want to admit things that could get them in trouble if their spouse found out. So if a patient really doesn't trust that their doctor is going to keep things confidential, the doctor may not find out that, for example, the patient's at a high risk of a sexually transmitted disease. That is a reason that we asked about and that did come up. We specifically asked about concerns about the information in question being in their medical record, which then, of course, has the potential to be shared with others. And some people did say that that was a factor, but that was not among the most common. But doctors are not always blameless if their patients don't level with them. Moffat says the fear they'll be judged or lectured is legitimate. In my own life as having been on the other side of the bed as a patient, yeah, I'm going to say this. Docs in general don't have great bedside manner. (laughs) And I think maybe that's what inspired me to do what I'm doing in that there is a better way to do this. If a doctor asks a leading question, for example, you don't smoke, do you? <laughs> and you heard the, even the judgment in my voice when I said it. So it's how we ask the question. So a student would get dinged in my course if they ask any leading question. Or it could even be what we call a stack question where I may ask three questions in a row. And typically, most patients aren't going to be able to hold the first one in their head, so they'll answer the last one. So it's not like they're even on purpose doing it. I think that we as physicians need to take some responsibility in this is that we may ask leading questions, we may ask stack questions, and so patients are going to respond in the way they think we want to hear it. But obviously that carries consequences. Germankin Levy says when we fib to the doctor, it's not always a harmless little white lie. Maybe patients would be more forthcoming if they knew that. It's so important for clinicians to get accurate information from their patients so that they can make accurate diagnoses and so that they can make appropriate recommendations. There's some real consequences that can arise when patients don't fully disclose relevant, medically relevant information or withhold medically relevant information. Um, It can have very real consequences for patients' medical care and ultimately their health. So for instance, 
If a patient neglects to mention or deliberately withhold information from a doctor that they're taking a certain medication, the doctor could then go and prescribe a medication that is dangerous in conjunction with that undisclosed medication. And there's so many possible scenarios like that one that can result from patient non-disclosure. So what can we do about it? It wouldn't be so bad if doctors knew when their patients were fibbing. But Moffitt says there are only a few clues that studies have turned up. One big one? You pause before you lie. <laughs> you're, there's this decision that you're making in your head. Am I going to get on tour or am I going to just fib here? And I thought that was kind of interesting because that's not something that I personally am really aware of. And in fact, I can tell you there are physicians are usually the worst person to figure out if the patient's lying. I think we know from research on lying that it is in general difficult to detect lying, whether it's within the medical setting or not. But I don't think that doctors get any specific training in that regard. And there's so many other things that doctors have to focus on that the patient does talk about that I'm not sure that they have a lot of time to kind of chase down things that the patient isn't talking about. However, Moffitt says it's time very well spent. And even though it's patients who aren't forthcoming, doctors are the ones who are in the best position to take some time to fix it. The docs, we need to take some responsibility here and create the environment that the patient feels comfortable opening up. Because I'm going to say this, even questions that are on a more intimate nature, like sexual behaviors, if I don't know you're engaging in these things and there may be risks to you that are associated with this, then I am blind to that, and I'm not considering it in potentially the differential diagnosis that I may be considering in you. And if I don't have that information, shame on me. It's partly my fault. I would hope that my patients would be more forthcoming, but I'm going to say we got to own our piece of this. And I think that is creating that environment of trust so that you know that I'm not going to judge you. This is information that I need to help take care of you. Is it a matter of having clinicians make better eye contact? Is it a matter of asking the more uncomfortable stuff kind of in a questionnaire prior to the appointment? Because maybe it's easier to tell a piece of paper about something embarrassing than to tell your clinician face-to-face. Maybe it's a matter of when the clinician asks about some embarrassing symptom or uncomfortable issue going on that maybe if the clinician normalizes it for the patient. I have a lot of patients who deal with erectile dysfunction at your age. Do you ever feel any issues in that regard? So perhaps that would make patients feel more comfortable. We would have to kind of test these different strategies, but those are some possibilities that could potentially have an impact. The doctoring curriculum Moffitt directs at the University of Arizona tackles all of this head-on by teaching medical students communication skills that invite the patient to open up. How do you teach a young person to engender trust? And so those are the things that I work with my students on. So it's really active listening. So you shut your mouth and you allow your patient to tell the story. You can ask clarifying questions. I'm going to say this. It is truly is a labor of love because most of us want to get in and just get the story and make a diagnosis and then move on. But in truly trying to develop trust, you need to actually allow your patient to talk. One key is to get patients to connect emotionally in the encounter. It would go something like this. So tell me, emotionally, how are you dealing with this? And so you may say to me, I'm really worried about this chest pain. Okay, so then I'm going to ask and explore questions. So then, so tell me more why you're worried. 
And then you might tell me, oh my gosh, you know, my father died when he was my age from a heart attack, and I think this is what this is. Or you might tell me something else, okay? So the issue here is that now I have an understanding of why you're worried. One other skill Moffitt teaches is silence. Sometimes doctors have to resist filling it up with their own words and let the patient do it. It's amazing. I mean, we feel uncomfortable with it. And so it's just little techniques that you tell the student you need to count in your head. 1,001, 1,002. <laughs> so that you allow, I mean, it's going to be uncomfortable for you. You're going to want to fill it and you cannot. You need to let them. It is truly, silence is golden. It really is because it will allow the person sitting across from you to open up and begin to share. It's also important for doctors to make everything they say understandable because one other finding of the survey on fibbing is this. Many patients aren't telling the truth when they say they understand what their doctors told them. But none of what it takes to get patients to open up and tell the truth takes very long, as long as the doctor knows how to do it. You can imagine, I mean, just like the tools that I'm using, most docs feel like this takes too much time. <laughs> it takes too much time. I have 15 minutes with you. Are you kidding me? There are rubs both ways in the sense that physicians see barriers in truly trying to apply uh, many of the techniques. But I tell my students, if you emotion validate, it takes less than 30 seconds to do. And you have changed that encounter. You've changed that person because they're going to be more interested in giving you information. It's worth 30 seconds. You can find out more about all of our guests through our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. I'm Reed Pence. Many seniors are not receiving an important health evaluation during routine checkups with their doctors. According to the Alzheimer's Association 2019 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures Report, new data shows that only half of seniors are being assessed for cognitive decline in the primary care setting, and only one in seven are receiving regular assessments. Alzheimer's Association Chief Program Officer Joanne Pike says the report highlights a missed opportunity for seniors and their physicians. These findings are in sharp contrast to the majority of seniors who receive other routine assessments like cholesterol, diabetes, vision, and hearing. The Alzheimer's Association encourages seniors to be more proactive in discussing memory-related concerns so that changes warranting further attention can be addressed in a timely manner. Pike says that while there is currently no cure for Alzheimer's, early detection and diagnosis of the disease offers many important benefits. Learn more about the warning signs of Alzheimer's dementia at ALZ.org. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related death in the United States, but it's one cancer that's highly preventable if people get screened. If you aren't aware, you can't prevent it. That's why Steve Edmundowitz, president of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, says it's good to know. There are different screening tests out there and different recommendations for the age to start screening. There's a lot of information coming at consumers. Every screening test is not right for every person. Colonoscopy is considered the gold standard and is the only test that can actually prevent cancer by removing polyps. That's why it's important to talk with your doctor before age 50, because it's good to know. Don't get your information from cute commercials. Talk with your doctor. Experts recommend colonoscopy and fit tests as the best for people at average risk. ASGE has a handy tool to help you know when and how to get screened. 
Find out more at screenforcoloncancer.org. That's screenforcoloncancer.org. Two new studies show that only 10% of young women are aware heart disease is the leading cause of death in women. In fact, more than 75% of young women say they're not worried at all about getting heart disease or worry only a little. The surveys show they're much more concerned about other health issues, such as mood disorders. These, along with lack of awareness, are barriers to heart-healthy habits, according to Dr. Marianne Bowman, an American Heart Association science volunteer. It's important to remember that heart health is a long-term goal. We can help encourage young women to adopt health behaviors, like moving more and eating smart, to improve confidence in the short term, while at the same time setting them up for a healthy future. The surveys find that most young adult women have taken some actions to preserve their health, but heart health ranks well below concerns such as depression, anxiety, and sexual health. The studies were presented at the American Heart Association's Epidemiology and Prevention Lifestyle Scientific Sessions 2019. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.